In Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and uh, for our guests, welcome. My name is Paul Buckley, one of the pastors here. And we meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. to worship the Lord. And that includes a number of different elements that God has uh, given us from Scripture. And an important part of that is hearing His Word. So we take time to look at His Word and to have His Word taught and proclaimed and to respond to the Word. So we're in a series in Genesis. Uh, I'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 14 through 24. Uh, Peg and I have been enjoying the, the uh, chosen portrayal of the life and ministry of Christ. Uh, just a side comment, I am hesitant to recommend any movie uh, version of Jesus. The, the Word of God gives us what we need to know, but I think it can be helpful. And, um, and I believe that this one is actually one of the better renditions of of the life and ministry of Christ. One thing that I particularly enjoyed about it is how they portray Christ in his humanity and humility and compassion. Uh, some of the other renditions, uh, the Christ character as it's portrayed is just kind of otherworldly. I don't know if you know what I mean. They're just, uh, you know, just so holy and so different that he's hard to relate to. And yet in this series, uh, without compromising his holiness, they do a great job of portraying his humility and uh, compassion in his humanity. And to the point, I think it's really important for us to accurately understand what Christ is like, who he is. Uh, he is God in the flesh. He is the exact representation of God. And, and so a rendition like this can help us. Ultimately, the word of God helps us. A.W. Tozer, the Christian pastor and author um, of the previous century, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So getting who God is, is really important. And our passage today portrays God and his character in, in some profound ways. We will see as we look through this passage, both the holiness of God, that is perfect, as Toby said, it, it's perfect and flawless and infinite, but also the graciousness of God that is actually beyond understanding. He's both infinitely holy and gracious beyond understanding. Uh, and that's what our passage teaches us. We need to know God as He is. So let's pray as we prepare to hear from God's Word and encounter God through His Word. Lord, we thank You for who You are. You are glorious beyond our understanding. We'll never fully understand how glorious you are. And in your glory, you are perfect in your holiness. You are holy, holy, holy. You are right and good in every way. And Lord, you are gracious beyond any uh, level of understanding any of us have. There's no one like you. And we thank you for your word that teaches us what you're like. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit, Holy Spirit, God, the, the spirit that you are here with us and help us now through your ministry, through the word, to, to behold God in all of his glory, to understand this passage, to believe it and apply it and to walk with you. Help me to serve you, Lord, and your precious people and, and those among us who want to know you as well, Lord. Uh, use me, I pray. Glorify your name, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, reading to the end. The Lord God said to the serpents, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity 
between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God's word from Genesis 3, 14 through 24. I want to work through this passage and as it reveals to us uh, the character of God, as we see God's response to this dark moment with both curses and blessings, blessings and curses that help us know him better in both his holiness and grace. So first, the curses. Last week, uh, we saw how the fall happened. We saw how the created order was inverted. Uh, God's intention is that we would image God. The man would be the head in that with his wife's help under his leadership. And then they, two, the two would preside over the animals. And in the fall, that gets inverted. Uh, Satan takes on the form of a snake, an animal, uh, tempts the woman. The woman leads her husband in dis his disobedience and therefore undermines God. So things get turned upside down. And here in our section today, God is going to address that in the reverse order. So first, he addresses the snake. When he addressed Adam and Eve, he asks them questions. Here he doesn't ask the snake any questions. He pronounces judgment on the snake. He curses the snake, and he's immediately and irretrievably cursed. He must go about on his belly. He must eat dust. These are, these are signs of, of complete humiliation. And this state for the serpent, and, and through the, the serpent, the snake, speaking to Satan himself, is an eternal judgment outside of the redemptive promises we will encounter as we go through this paragraph. It's a final judgment on the snake. And we'll see it in the book of Revelation, uh, as you read through the Bible. We see it in the promise given in Isaiah 65, which is a midpoint in your Bible, speaking of the promise of God's redemption. It mentions the snake. Isaiah 65 says, the, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. We have this to project. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So this is a picture of, of the new, new Jerusalem coming. Things are going to be changed. There's going to be redemption. But for the snake, 
he will continue to eat dust. There will be a, an eternal judgment on the snake. Furthermore, he will no longer be in cahoots with the woman. He will be at enmity with her and her offspring with him. He says, I will put enmity, God says, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So no longer is there a partnership, but there is enmity. The offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman will never be at peace. The offspring will bruise the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel. Now, this is true in the animal kingdom. Snakes can be dangerous and they bite at your heel, but it's really pointing to the spiritual world. Satan and his minions will continue to harass mankind. While mankind, at least those under God's reign, will fight and crush Satan. Now that's seen as we follow the storyline in, in the first five books of the Bible in God's covenant people whom he calls out of Egypt, out of sin, out of darkness to himself and then they are to come and they are to live under his reign and they are to conquer evil and establish a kingdom of sorts and so this was uh, fulfilled in part in the old covenant people of God. But it's ultimately fulfilled in the only faithful covenant keeper the ultimate seed of the woman, Jesus. Jesus himself was wounded by the snake in the process of his life and work, and yet he crushed Satan once and for all. As we heard earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, it says about Jesus, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus has come, he's taken on flesh and blood, he's lived a full human life, he's fulfilled all righteousness, and then he offered that life on the cross to die in our place. And then through his death, to pay for our sins, and to destroy the one who has the power of death, as we've learned in our story, through his temptation and the fall of man, the devil. Christ has crushed Satan. He has fulfilled what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. Furthermore, Colossians 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses, speaking of us, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, speaking of Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He has crushed Satan. He is victorious. And in him, we live in this. Jesus has won the victory over Satan. This has been fulfilled through Christ. But the war is not yet over. We all have the decisive weapons to crush Satan in Jesus. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6. The armor of God is all based on Jesus and the good news, the reality that he has overcome sin and death, and we, through him, have overcome sin and do overcome sin and death. But there's a battle that continues. Jesus is still extending his kingdom and, 
and taking the kingdom back from the enemy. So 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this. For he must reign, speaking of Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I would submit to you that that's what the Great Commission is about. Going to all nations, extending the victory, the reign of Christ. We saw it a little while ago in Romans 16 as Paul speaks to the Romans. He calls the Romans to live out the truths of the gospel. And, and he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is speaking not of the final day, because it says we'll soon. And not speaking of Christ's victory, certainly that's understood, but the victory through the local church under your feet. And this is the reality we live in. The victory has been accomplished through Christ's death. It is finished. He has died. He has been raised to life. He's reigning now. And through us, as we live in this truth, Genesis 3, and the promise that's here of the crushing of Satan takes place. The enemy, though, is still out there. There is still a war going on. There's the reality of the snake. Snakes are really interesting animals, by the way. Um, and I did a little bit of research on snakes related to this. There are only two venomous snakes in New England, thankfully. Um, makes me glad I don't live in other parts of the world. Only two venomous snakes in New England, the copperhead and the, and the rattlesnake. Anyone here ever run into a copperhead or rattlesnake in New England? Good thing. Neither have I. Other parts of the world are very different uh, in terms of snakes. Uh, Snakes are more of a threat elsewhere. In the United States, about five people die a year from snake bites of the whole population. Uh, yet in India, 64,000 or so people die a year from snake bites. And this points to a deeper reality. Every year, worldwide, about 70 million people die from a snake bite. The bite of the serpent here in the garden. 70 million people die physically every year in our world, more or less. And the death is because of what's happened here, because of the work of the snake. And yet there's a cure for the venom. It's the one who is lifted up on the cross. And all and any who look to him. It's that simple. Look to him. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your sin and look to him. All those who simply look to him and trust him are cured of that snake Though you may die physically, you are alive forevermore spiritually. And he will return and restore our physical bodies and restore the whole creation. He will bring the full and final cure to the venom of the snake that we see here. Well, next, God speaks to the woman and brings curses uh, here. Curses that, that teach us to look to Christ and look to the reverse of the curse, as the title of the message is. So he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. He brings curses to both Adam and Eve for their willful rebellion, for their sin. And he brings them appropriate to their chief roles. So the particular curses they encounter in this passage are related to their particular roles, respectively. The woman is a helper, and uniquely among the couple, she bears and nurtures children. 
It's important to see what's being said here and understand the implications. There's a distinction here between the genders. There's a distinction in roles that's to be understood and, and lived out, such as Paul does in 1 Timothy 2. There's a design for the genders. And, and so even in the curse, God is speaking to their roles, that the woman is uniquely gifted to bring forth life under the care and leadership of the man. These are, these are paradigms for us in understanding gender. Uh, and so Eve faces pain in childbearing. And this is a curse that strikes to the heart of her call as a woman. And, and I would say that, that that's part of God's design for women, to bring forth children, whether it be biological children, or to bring forth life and nurture things and produce health and flourishing in their giftedness. And so this curse speaks to the very, the very heart of her call as a woman, and it's very sad, isn't it? To think that one of the most cherished things a woman can do involves pain instead of joy. And I'm sure those of you who are moms know this, uh, know this more than I would ever know this, or any man might ever know this. There's pain instead of joy. What a difference it would make if it was pure joy and no pain. And so the curse brings pain at the very, the very uh, core of the call of both the man and the woman. There's more that's said here as well in, the, in this curse. The second part of verse 16 points to some more trouble. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Your desire shall be contrary. Or some translations, your desire... Uh, shall be for your husband. You have a translation that maybe says that. And, and maybe you've heard teaching that. It means that you really want your husband to be close to your husband or something like that. But is that what it means? My translation says contrary. The word that's used there, preposition, can mean, uh, can mean for or, or towards or against. So that's thus the different translations. The Hebrew word can be interpreted both ways. But if we just go forward a chapter, there's... Almost the exact phrase that's used that helps us understand what it means here in chapter 3. So you fast forward to chapter 4, verse 7. I think we have this to project. And it says, uh, speaking, this is speaking to Cain. So this is the offspring of Adam and Eve. And sin has been introduced into the world, and Cain is kind of letting sin rule him. And so God confronts Cain and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And then this, it, its desire is for you, or its desire is contrary to you. Exact same wording as in chapter 3, and, and thus the same choices for translations. But you must rule over it. And so in this context, what's going on, sin wants to, it desires something related to Cain. And God said, but you must rule over it. And so we understand what it desires is to have him, to rule him, to control him. That's what this means. The desire for you is not, I really like you, I want to be with you. No, I want to control you. That's what he's speaking of. And so the curse that comes into play in the man and the woman is this, this, this battle for control. The woman wants to control the husband in some way, and it says the husband, but he shall rule over you. That's not a favorable rule, by the way. The implication is tyrannical rule. It's not proper headship, which is addressed elsewhere in Scripture. No, this is dominance. And so there's a battle 
for control and dominance. And the result will be, it says, that you'll desire this, but he is going to use his position, his natural God-given privileges and design, and he will actually dominate you. It's not a good thing. Neither of these is right. Neither the control nor the dominance. They are both contrary to God's design. This is not a Christ-like headship on the man's part. Don't read it that way. This is something else. And this explains, this is the pathology of the universal problem of the battle of the sexes, is it not? There might be other things there, but it's this battle for control. This battle with sinful people trying to control and have their way. It's the pathology. and It means it describes it. It tells us the origin of it and the nature of it. But that doesn't help a whole lot, does it? When Scripture does things like points out a pathology, it should stir us to want to read more. All right, we see the problem, but where's the answer? How does this get fixed? What a tragedy this is because they are, they are made for each other and they're enjoying this union that they have and all of a sudden now they're battling, blaming and battling. Well, we can fast forward to a number of places, but a, a very profound place is Ephesians 5. That's where we find the cure for the curse, where the curse is reversed. So chapter 5 is, is following on from the goodness of the gospel, the good news of Christ, and it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jumping down, this is all in context. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A new way to live and relate to each other where you follow Christ and laying your life down in love for one another. And then he brings application to the man and the woman, particularly in the context of marriage. Now, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. No longer controlling, but serving, laying their lives down with wisdom, according to truth, with proper context indeed, but a, but a profound submission. And then to the husbands, husbands, Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do husbands love their wives? Well, it's a, it's a submission of sorts. It, it still acknowledges headship and leadership, but it's a submission of your entire life for your wife, even as Christ gave up himself entirely for the church. This is the cure for the curse of Genesis 3. It turns things right side up, doesn't it? And it's all because of Jesus alone. If you're married, you have the challenge of Genesis 3. You have the solution available to you of Ephesians 5. But you must look to Jesus for the truth and the power to do this, to reverse the curse. And by the way, if you're wondering why I keep on saying reverse the curse, for those of us who are Red Sox fans, we understand the context, the curse of the Bambino. 
um, was a superstition that when Babe Ruth was traded back in 1920 from the Red Sox, he cursed the Red Sox, and they didn't win uh, over, what, 84 years because of that curse. And, and there was a, oh, there, good, you got the picture. Uh, on the Stowe Drive, somebody graffitied uh, a sign that said reverse curve to reverse the curse. And that stayed there, right, for a while until 2004 when the curse was reversed. They won the World Series. Uh, and mostly by beating the Yankees, but in the, uh, not the World Series, but before that, playoffs. Uh, a wonderful time, right? And so the, the sign got changed. I didn't have a picture of that, but it says now, uh, reversed curse. Well, there's a sign over your life in Christ that says reversed curse. Genesis 3 need not describe, need not be the pathology of your life. Ephesians 5 and Christ reversing the curse should be the banner over us. And we shouldn't settle for less, brothers and sisters. Don't be content to allow sin and the ways, the curses of Genesis 3 to characterize your life or your marriage. Look to Jesus. Get help from your brothers and sisters. Learn to live out this redemption we have in Christ. Well, moving on. Uh, the man, verse 17. We encounter the curse for the man. He's confronted over his failure to, to lead his wife. Uh, to, he was called to guard the garden, and he should have vanquished the serpent. He should have believed God, listened to the voice of God primarily, and obeyed. But he listened to the voice of his wife. By the way, this is not any advocacy of not listening to your wife. That's not what's being said here. The problem is he listened to his wife over listening to God. And leadership for men is indeed to listen intently to your wife. But listen most of all to God. And if, even if you have to displease your wife, you follow what the Lord calls you to do. Adam failed to do that. He failed to really love his wife by listening to God's voice first and foremost. And so God brings consequences, a curse as a result. The ground is cursed because of his disobedience, because of his bold and terrible disobedience. The very ground is cursed. Now remember, his name is what? Mr. Ground, Adam means ground, so this is speaking to the core of who he is, being made from the ground, made to work the ground in the garden, in the context of the garden where things were meant to flourish, where the ground would have yielded and did yield fruitfulness and beauty with relatively little effort. He is tied to the ground in this way, but now the ground is cursed and he's going to be driven from the garden. He's going to be driven to the fields where, where things don't grow quite so well. And he's going, to, he's going to be called to this task, again, of being the breadwinner, of, of being the provider, of being the one who interacts with, with creation. But instead of it yielding things that are, that are beautiful and helpful with little effort, he's going to face pain. He's going to yield, the ground is going to yield thorns and thistles. He's going to sweat. He's going to be frustrated. Where the ground was meant to be a blessing, now... In some ways, the working of the ground is a curse. Murphy's Law begins at this moment. Murphy's Law is that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Um, I was interacting with uh, my daughter recently who was installing an appliance in her house. Uh, she's wonderfully intrepid that way. She had watched the YouTube video, and it was very easy and straightforward. should have taken five minutes, and she called because it wasn't taking five minutes. 
it wasn't working, things weren't coming off, things weren't going on, and then the part fell apart, actually. She had to return it. And I told her, we talked about Murphy's Law. This is the reality. Things don't go well, and, and don't believe the YouTube videos. They don't go that way unless you practice. They probably practice like 10 times before they take a, a YouTube. Uh, and that's the reality. That's what, that, what happens in our world. Life is pain, and labors are painful and frustrating. And this speaks to really the, the core of the role of the man to be the leader in these things, to be the breadwinner uh, as he's able to, to provide for his family, to protect his family. He's going to be frustrated. And he's going to try to bring food to the table and it's going to be tough. Notice how many times in the passage it says eat, five different times. As, as a result of him eating the forbidden fruit, he's going to find pain in trying to get things to eat and frustration. It's part of the curse. And at the end of it, he's told, just as he is made of dust, to dust he will return. He's already died spiritually. At that moment that he rebelled, he died spiritually. But he will die physically too. This is a terrible tragedy. The glorious ones the man and the woman made in the very image of God, having been personally crafted by God from the ground, having God personally breathed life into them, now are reduced to dirt and dust. Death is a terrible tragedy for people. It is wrong that those made in the image of God would die. Just this past week, one of the leaders of the NA group that meets here, a young man, died unexpectedly in the prime of his life. There's something wrong and shocking and offensive about death, and it should be that way. We should feel that way. We do feel that way. It's not right. We're made in the image of God. We're, we're made to be vessels that contain glory, that image God. But because of sin, because of our rebellion, because of our state, you have been made from dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is not our intended state, though. And this is why Jesus reacted the way he did at Lazarus' grave. You probably know the story, John chapter 11. Jesus is there. His good friend Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for some time. Mary and Martha, his friends, Lazarus' sisters, are there. And it says this in chapter 11, verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. That section in there where it says he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, we, we often interpret that in terms of him weeping, in terms of sadness. But actually, the word carries uh, other meaning with it that's more profound than sadness. That same, those same phrases are, are used elsewhere to, to speak of someone who's indignant, who's angry, who's upset, who's stern. It, it, I read one... Uh, Translator, one commentator said, it's to storm angrily. And so when it says he's deeply moved in the spirit, that's what it's saying. He's angry. He's upset. 
He's troubled. He, ha- he is experiencing this mixture of, of sadness and deep anger at this thing called death, the death of his friend. He's greatly troubled and he weeps in that place as he faces death. This shows us the character of God. God is holy. And yes, there is judgment that, that must come in sin because he's holy and he's good and he's righteous. But also we see in Christ, God in the flesh, anger over the state and sadness of death. And he does something about it, doesn't he? First, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. That day, that moment. And then he marches resolutely to the cross. For the joy set before him of freeing the captives from the horror and evil and curse of death. He dies in our place on the cross, suffering for our sins fully, finally. And then rises again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. Jesus stormed angrily against death. He did that for us. And we respond rightly by storming ourselves against death, by living in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, loving others in this, and seeking as best we can to convey to others that they need not die. Though they die physically, there is life eternal in Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. May this characterize all of our hearts. And may God bring harvest through us of many lives. He says, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay, not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let's storm against death with Jesus by loving our neighbors and telling them that they need not die. Well, this whole passage is full of both curses and blessings that teach us about the character of God. The next section in particular carries with it many promises. It goes on to explain what is to happen next. God has promised them the reality of death, but but they don't die immediately. There is mercy and grace here. It could have ended right there. And, and, And to those who would object to God bringing curses like this, let me say that it is a necessary logic. It is a necessary truth that there is death apart from God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God is the only source. He is the only source. He is the only source of truth and goodness and life. And if you cut yourself off from God, you must, therefore, be cut off from life, goodness, and truth. That's the reality. We're in the winter right now, right? We're in the winter because the angle of the sun, the angle of the sun to the earth for us changes. We don't complain that just that's not fair. How come it can't be summer all the time? 
How come we can't be warm without the sun? Why do we have to depend on the sun? No one does that. Because we know the sun is the only significant source of heat. It's, so not to have the sun is not to have heat. No one complains about that. That's how it is with God. God is the only source of goodness and truth and life. And so these curses and, and, the, and the consequences of death and judgment are natural and necessary. When we cut ourselves off from God, we necessarily cut ourselves off from life and goodness and truth. And yet, in his goodness, there's mercy and grace. And he desires that none should perish. And so the storyline here, even amidst these curses that are coming, we, we, we see promise in, in, implied in the curses themselves, but also here explicitly in verse 20 and following. First, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. They were promised death. And yet... Adam names his wife Eve, which means life. Because she's the mother of all living. There's life coming. It's not total death. There are descendants coming. There are countless descendants coming. All humanity comes through this woman who rebelled with her husband and was promised death. But instead of the fullness of death, there is life now. Living beings coming. And ultimately, Jesus himself coming from the descendants of Eve. And all humanity and all the countless redeemed coming from Eve. She is the mother of all living. On the other side of the darkness of death, there's life, there's hope, there's God working, there's God calling us to hope and look to Him. And then verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They saw their sin and their bankruptcy apart from God represented in their nakedness. They tried to clothe themselves with these pathetic fig leaf things. And now God makes a whole outfit for them of animal skins. And God himself clothes them. And the first audience for this book would have immediately made the connection with animal sacrifice. Animals had to be sacrificed to clothe them. Because the first audience was the people of God under the leadership of Moses as the Old Covenant was brought in. The Old Covenant is full of promise and provision. God reverses the curse for his people in that context. And he provides a way for them to return to the garden, to return to his presence. And he provides for a way to cover, to pay for their sins, to atone for their sins, to pay the penalty, death's promise for disobedience. And to be clothed in his, his goodness in relationship with him. So this, they would have made those connections here. And would have understood. And we should as well. We should understand. Here is God who had every reason just to bring the fullness of death. Now personally clothing them with sacrificed animals. This ultimately points to Jesus himself. God himself becomes the sacrifice as he takes on flesh. Lives the life that Adam and Eve should have lived. The life that the covenant people of God should have lived. Lives that life perfectly. And then offers himself up as that sacrifice. To die in our place and to provide covering for us. 
His righteousness, His satisfaction, His perfect humanity is now the spiritual clothing, more significant even than physical clothing, the clothing for His people. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. My little children, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Passage continues in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The man and the woman do know good and evil in a certain way now. And they know that in a way that's independent from God. They are no longer in relationship with him, dependent on him. And so in a sense they can become their own gods. Because we're made in the image of God, we can discern things to a degree. We can figure out what at least we think is good and evil. And we can all act independently. That's what's implied here and being said. And so God says, well, we can't let, now that, that in a sense they can be their own gods like, like us, the triune God, three in one. We can't let them reach out and take the tree of life because then you'll have an immortal evil being. And that would not be good for anybody. We can't let them have access to life. We're in trouble now. They can know good and evil, though they can't really know it, and if we let them live forever, it's going to be a terrible thing. This is, uh, this is how we should understand it. It's, it's dangerous. Mankind is a danger, is what's going on. And so if he lives eternally, he's going to create great destruction. And so he's driven out of the garden. And then a, a cherubim, cherubim are put. These are mighty angels. These are guard angels. And they are put to guard the east entrance. And there's a flaming sword there. Cherubim are, are these angels, like the seraphim, but the difference is these are guard angels, not so much worship angels. But they're mighty, like the seraphim. And where else do we see them in Scripture? Again, a connection that the Old Covenant people would have got. You see them embroidered on the curtains around the tabernacle and between the holy place and the holy of holies. They guard the way into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and they themselves are over the Ark of the Covenant, guarding the place where God's presence most profoundly dwells. And so we recognize that the garden is, as we've said before, the temple, the tabernacle, the place of his presence. And they are driven out from that. But of course, this should be understood as being read and heard by the people of God who now live around the tabernacle and now realize that this same God who drove them out has now welcomed us in, has called us to respond to his grace, to trust in him, to depend on his provision to cover our sins, to pay for our sins and cover us in righteousness and to come into the Holy of Holies to come in ultimately through Christ who is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and temple. Through Him and His blood shed for us. And as He makes the presence of God known to us, we ourselves now have communion with God Himself. 
through Christ. John says in 1 John 1, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship. That word fellowship is communion as well. It's a close relationship to have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than to have fellowship with God. To have that fellowship restored in Christ. To have the curse fully reversed in Jesus. And so through this story in Genesis 3 and the implications for the rest of Scripture, we we learn about the character of God. What He's like. As Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about God as a result of hearing these truths? He is holy. He alone is goodness. He alone is truth and life. He is perfect and flawless. He will not tolerate evil or sin. He will deal with it. But he has dealt with it. Through Christ. He is both holy beyond comprehension and gracious beyond belief. This is our God. Come trust in him know him and live in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and who you are. We thank you for these realities. We thank you, Lord, for the rescue from the curse. We thank you for what we have and what we will have in the fullness of it. And Lord, we thank you for the mission you call us to. There are countless numbers of people out there who need to know you. And we know on that final day, we won't be able to count the numbers, so we ask you, Use us, O Lord, to proclaim these truths as well, to live out the implications of them in such a way in our love for one another and for those around us that the world would be compelled to come and see and know. We thank you, Lord, for your truth and who you are. We pray you would glorify your name in our lives as a result. In Christ's name we pray.